Yes. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to An Elegant Weapon, episode 340. My name is Jay, J.M. Clark, Jay, the Jedi Ross, Ross Jedi Jay, and as always, it's so wonderful to have all you beautiful babies back here with me in the L5J studios. Last month, the Points of Interest podcast network of which An Elegant Weapon is a very, very proud member, was very lucky, privileged, and honored to return as the official moderation team for the Great Philadelphia Comic Con, and what a party it was. Man, did we host some awesome, awesome Q&As, which a bunch of our shows are bringing to you right now at POIPodcast.com. Go check it out. But here on The Weapon, I present to you a goodie. Good times. You know him as the godfather of shock rock. Detroit rock and roll. That's right. Mr. Alice Cooper. What a nice guy. Uh, It's true what they say, kids. Uh, Super, super, super nice guy. So chill, so chatty, as you're about to hear right now. We sat down, had a little chat, took a bunch of Q&A from the audience, and uh, it was amazing. It was great, as you're about to hear. So kids, please enjoy my Q&A conversation with Mr. Alice Cooper. Hello, hello. Oh, there you go. Mr. Alice Cooper. I got on, the guy says, uh, you have to turn on the mic. I said, oh, is this how you use the mic? I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Where would you like to sit, sir? All right. Excellent. I feel like Don't I'm in my aunt's here. house here. Let me sit over here so I can see what you're doing. Right on. All right. Thank you so much All right, much first for of all, us. no math, okay? No math questions. No math questions. We all hear that? Thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Thank you. This is super, super cool. I'm just going to start and have a little chat with Alice, which is going to give you guys a chat, a chance to line up at this microphone over here if anybody's got any questions. You can slowly make your way orderly and nicely and such over to the microphone. But I shall begin if that's all right. All right. I'm here, yes. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a young lad. And I'm hearing a lot of your music. My dad's got all your albums. He's playing them all the time. I'm digging it. Not really quite sure, because I'm young. Is Alice Cooper the band? Is it the guy? Then one night, I sit down with my family to watch a little show called The Muppet Show. (laughs) The first time I'd ever actually laid eyes on you or your performance or your art and was just like, what is this? Changed everything for me of just what was possible and what was art. Uh, do you remember that experience? Well, that was probably the most fun thing I ever did was doing the Muppets because it was Jim Henson and Frank Oz and all the original guys. And we did it in London. And I wasn't going to do it originally because, you know, it was the biggest show in the world. It was a kiddie show. And I went, I spent all this time becoming a villain and now I'm going to water it down with this. And I asked him, I said, well, who just did the show? And they said, Christopher Lee and Vincent Price. I went, I'm in. Because <laughs> I, I want to be in that company, you know. Uh, and, and it was so much fun, except for the fact that after a week, you start talking to the Muppets like they were people. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's so easy to do, because Miss Piggy's right here, you know, and we're rehearsing, and I go, 
you know, it would be better if you put your hand on my shoulder when we do this song. It would be really funny. Oh, okay, good idea, you know, like that. And you spend your whole time talking to the Muppets, and you buy right into it. Because they, re they react exactly the way, the way a person would, you know. And it, it gets you so comfortable with the characters then, they're just actors then. They, they, you know, Kermit becomes an actor. There was a little problem, because Miss Piggy kept coming on to me. <laughs> I had a little hoof marts all over, and Kermit was getting pissed off, and I was going, hey, I'm not me, okay. Did you find that opened you up to a larger audience, where a lot, a lot more people, like, yeah, it, more receptive? Yeah, and, and you know, there was, there was a time in the career where you can paint yourself into a corner. In other words, you can be the scary guy and the rock guy, and then just be that all the time, or you can break out of that and let everybody know that you can also do this, you can do that. I, I started doing the Johnny Carson show just as a guest. So, you know, if you made people laugh, that was another, another dimension to the character. Right, you know, right. So, and we started doing more acting then, you know, and if you paint yourself into the corner, then you're just a one-trick pony. You can right. only do that, you know. How early did it start as far as developing the character? Like back in the Spiders days and stuff, was, were you leaning towards starting to get yeah, a little theatrical? Yeah, we, we were always very theatrical, the band was. Um, they said that we were the band that drove the stake through the heart of the love generation, <laughs> which <laughs> I kind of liked, you know. The idea was there was, I thought of all of my rock and roll heroes, and then I went, wait a minute, they're all heroes, where's the villain? Right. And I said, with all these Peter Pans, there needs to be a Captain Hook. Absolutely. And I developed Alice to be Rock's supervillain. Right. And that's just the way I, I've always pictured Alice as being that villain. You know, and so it's fun to play the villain. Was it early in your life or career that things like comic books and a love of, you know, thriller and suspense and I was horror? from Detroit. And I, when we were kids about that big, our parents would drop us off at the movie theaters. And we would see... The Creature from the Black Lagoon, it came from outer space and the brain that wouldn't die, right? All in black and white. But we'd be there all day. And I, I think I kind of developed a, uh, a love for those movies because of the fact they were scary, but they were funny. You know, I mean, yeah. if you saw through it, you, you, every good horror movie is a, is a good comedy, is a pretty good comedy. Uh, first time I saw Evil Dead, I was watching yeah. it and I went, there can't be any more blood in this movie. And right as I said that, he hits this pipe and he gets covered in blood. And I burst out laughing. And I went, it's a comedy. It's a great right, comedy. Right, yeah. yeah. I recently was actually, uh, I decided to jump the gun with my eight-year-old son and introduce you to him. Yeah. Because uh, I wasn't a huge horror kid, but my kid is. Yeah. My kid just loves it. He eats at a creep show yeah. and everything, right? So I introduce it, and he, he's eight years old, and he just thinks you're the coolest. Well, you know you what? Know? There's nothing wrong with that, as long as you understand that it's, it's fiction. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. I think some of the things that are actually scary is when you watch things like, you know, Ghost Adventures and things like that. And I know these guys. And I always kind of go, you know, you're not dealing with ghosts, right? And they go, wait. I said, you're either de dealing with angels or demons, and angels don't hide in cellars. Right. <laughs> so right. I think you're dealing directly with demons. Right, right. Um, and then eventually you get to the point where you make your own comic book. Well, you know, getting to, it was such a great thing for Stan Lee to call up and say, we want to do a comic book. And the best thing about being a Marvel comic character is they draw you with great abs. 
<laughs> so I didn't have to work on any abs. He had big shoulders. He straightened my nose out. He did everything. So every time I'd see Stan, I'd say, thank you. He, he gave me Spider-Man's body, which was great. That's awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, is this all press, or did one of you guys have a question? I got a question. Yeah, absolutely. What do you hey. got? Alice, I've seen you in Philadelphia many, many times. I was wondering if you have any recollections, I know you play all over the world, of the Philadelphia shows that you have played. Any recollections, I'm, including the Spectrum, which is no longer there, by the way. Oh yeah, Spectrum was like the big, that was the big show. Uh, we did Billion Dollar Babies there, we did Nightmare there, we did everything, you know. Um, and it's kind of interesting in doing rock and roll, you can do a whole series, sometimes we'll go out and do nothing but arenas. And then, then we'll say, let's, on the next tour, let's just do nothing but old theaters. And our show fits so well into an old theater because it's very vaudevillian. Like our, the tower? Yeah, so I would rather play a 3,000-seat theater when you do these big 100,000-seat you know, uh, yeah. uh, arena things or, or uh, outdoor shows. The show gets so watered down because it gets, it's, but you put that same show in a theater about the size of this, and it gets intense. So, you know, we, we do both. Right, you know. right, right. I have one more question, and I'll let somebody else ask. Uh, you were with Warner Brothers Records, except for Billion Dollar, I'm sorry, uh, Welcome to My Nightmare, which was on Atlantic. How did that come to be? It was by special arrangement, Alice Cooper with, uh, I was like, wow, that's interesting. I never got to ask you how that we happened. We were the Warner Brothers, and Shep, my manager, said, well, this is going to be a film, and it's also going to be, uh, you know, this and that. And since it was a film, it could be sold to anybody because it, it, uh, the contract was just for recording, studio recording. Okay. Since it was a film, then it could be, then, you know, the other, the other, all the other uh, record companies were, wanted it, you know. So Chef just sold it to the highest bidder on that point. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's very cool. As we're talking, is, uh, it's amazing because I've noticed kind of it's almost like every 10 years or so throughout that I've been alive because there was the Muppets when I was a kid. Yeah. Then I got a little older and then came Poison, yeah. which was just at that age was the most rocking album. Yeah. It was so fantastic. Thank you. And then a few years after that comes Wayne's World. Yeah. And these things keep happening where you're just like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing <laughs> it. I'm doing it forever. Well, I, I'm a lifer. Right. You know, I started when I was 15. I'm 71 now. And I've got two tours coming up now. I got the Vampires Tour, the Hollywood Vampires Tour. Yeah. And then my tour, four albums are coming out this year. A, a live album, a studio album from the Vampires. There's a live album from a Paris right now from the Alice Cooper show. And then a studio album. Wow. So, you know, at 71, I said, well, I'll slow down a little bit. <laughs> I'm working more now than I did in 75. So. <laughs> I guess it keeps you going. Well, my mom right. says, if you retire, you expire. Right, so, right, right. How are you today? She's 95. Is she? She's really nice? She's 95. She's, wow. Yeah. Irish wow. hillbilly, you know. She's an Irish hillbilly that just tougher than nails. You know. That's amazing. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. First of all, I think I speak for everybody. We're not worthy. You're worthy. You here. may stand. Uh, I first... Uh, heard of you when you accompanied Jake the Snake at WrestleMania 3 when I was five years old. And then, of course, Wayne's World, my dad took me to see it, and that, I still call it Millie Wake. So. <laughs> Millie Wake, yeah. which is Algonquin for the good land. Yes. Uh, <laughs> my question is, uh, as a horror movie fanatic, what was it like working uh, with John Carpenter on Prince of Darkness? 
You know, I went, I, I, I was invited to go down, I wanted to go see some of the special effects they were doing downtown LA um, when they were doing Prince of Darkness. I wanted to see the, the mercury effect of the hand coming through. And he says, hey, Alice, you know what would be kind of funny? It'd be if you were one of the, you know, the, uh, the street people. I oh, okay, fine. I put a, put a stocking cap on and kind of put my head down. And about an hour later, he says, you know, it would be great if you were like the leader of these people. And I went, okay, great. So now I'm in two or three scenes. He says, you know that trick you do on stage where you put the microphone through the guy's chest and it comes out the other end? Yeah. He says, could you do that with a bicycle? <laughs> and I went, yeah. So now I'm in the movie. You know, I had no intention of being in that movie, but all of a sudden I was in like 12 scenes of it. So I picked up the, uh, the CD and I look on the back, there's my picture on it. You know, so it was really fun working with John Carpenter. He's, uh, I really like his music. I don't think that Halloween would have been nearly as scary without the music. You know, that, that he, he's really, really competent with the music he does too. Great guy. Thank you. It was Thank an you. honor. Big, awesome. big wrestling fan too. I'd actually, I forgot that that happened, that, but now I'm remembering. It's all flooding back, you and Jake the Snake. That was great. Sorry, hi. 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 <laughs> um, you are like one of my favorite storytellers. And uh, I've heard some really, really good ones from you over the years. But I think my favorite one is the one where you were on your way back from Acapulco with the armadillo under your arm on your way to Boston in January in the white suit. Do you still have the armadillo? Oh, I'm sorry. What was that? I'm sorry. Sorry, uh, can, we, can we actually turn the, uh, the question mic up a little yeah. bit? I didn't which, catch what was that the story, which one? The one where you were coming back from Acapulco with the armadillo oh, yeah. under your oh, arm. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. I, um, <laughs> I was in Acapulco and I'm, on the last day there, I had, I had to go to New York and MC a Christmas show in Boston. And I went, okay, so we're gonna go out one last night. We went out to the most expensive restaurant on the beach and had lobster that poisoned me so bad that for, I mean, for 12 hours I was throwing up and, and everything else that goes with it, you know? And I had to get on this plane the next day. So I had this little linen white suit on and I had a stuffed armadillo that I was gonna take back to my apartment. So that's all I was carrying. You know, and on the way there, I threw up 40 times at least and had diarrhea at least six times. Got to the airport, and there's a new wing on the airport that they're just building. And I told everybody, I said, I'll meet you at the gate. I've got to go. And I go to the bathroom and fill this thing up. And as I flush it, it explodes on me. So now I've got this little white suit on that's covered from here to there with the worst stuff in the world. It's all mine, but, and an armadillo. And I'm trying to get, you know, I say, what am I gonna do? I, I filled up, you know, the, the wash basin, and I tried to get everything out of the, the shirt and wash my hair, and, I, and I'm walking to the gate, and it's like, it was like the scene on the waterfront, you know, where he's beat up and he's walking, and, you, and I get right to the gate, and the gate closes. And which was fine for me, because that meant I would get to go to a hospital. <laughs> And I slid down the thing, and they, they finally put me on the flight, which probably nobody wanted me on the flight. And I slept for eight hours like this, you know. And we got there to Boston, and I went, oh, wait a minute. 
I've got a little linen shirt on, and it's Boston at Christmas time. It's about 28 below. This is all happening within 24 hours, so they finally get to the, you know, to the hotel with my armadillo. My shirt's frozen at this point. And they said, oh, you're not due for two days. I said, you mean I could have stayed there for two days? Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> it was a series of unfortunate things that happened that you could never write in a movie. If you wrote that in a movie, you'd go, oh, that could never happen. It happened. Do you still have the armadillo? Yeah, still have the armadillo. He went through a lot with me. Thank Amazing. you for everything, and you Thank know what you. I mean. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, hi. What's your name? Haley. Haley, hello. Hi. Um, I actually have two questions, if that's all right. Um, question number one. I'm actually a singer myself, and I was wondering, what was your inspiration to become a singer? How do you become a singer? Uh, what, what is your, your inspiration, inspiration to become a singer? Oh, you know, I was 15 years old. I'm painting the house in summertime. And all of a sudden, I hear on the radio, the radio was on all the time. And all of a sudden, I hear, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves, and I said, what was that? <laughs> I'd never heard anything like that. And then about half an hour later, I heard, I want to hold your hand. You know, and I went, who is this? Because nobody, I didn't ever heard of the Beatles before. That was just, they were brand new. <laughs> I heard four songs that day from this band that was going to change the history of music. And I finally looked, you know, saw them on television. I saw my parents' reaction. And I went, oh, I've got to do this. I mean, it was my inspiration. The Beatles were, I think, probably started a thousand bands. Because everybody that saw the Beatles went, oh my gosh, that's, that looks like it's either that or working at the car wash, you know. And that was my inspiration. So myself, Dennis Dunaway, who was, we were on the track team, cross country team. And um, John Spear, the original guys in the original band. We just started a band that summer. And uh, the only really way to become a singer if you're not a singer is to mimic what you hear. So I learned everything from listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all that. And then you create your own after that. Mm -hmm. Okay, and my second question is, what are you most proud of when you perform? What are you most proud of when you perform? I think the longevity of the career. You know, I think the fact that it went on, for, it's still going on for 55 years. I one time made the mistake of saying, I'll retire after Mick Jagger retires. <laughs> <laughs> and he's five years older than me, four years older. So I have to wait till he retires and then go after that. So I've got at least six more years, you know. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, it's, why would you retire from anything that's as much fun as what we do? You know, I mean, we get to go on stage and do our own songs and especially our show. Our show is pretty dangerous. You know, I tell the guys, new guys in the band, I said, three things I can guarantee you. You're going to get paid. You're going to see the world. You're going to get stitches. <laughs> Everybody in the band has gotten stitches. Thank you so much. Thank you. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? Good. I have a quick story for you about the first time we met you. Me and my wife and my... Yeah. First time that we met you. Okay. And uh, when you were signing the autograph on your picture, you came out and you say, how come... He goes, I have a funny feeling that I'm going to see 
that Kern name in a movie. Two weeks after we saw you, my wife and son was an extra in a movie called Steakland. What was it? What was it called? It's Steakland. Okay. And uh, it's like it was really funny because after two weeks after we saw you, you said that to us, and it happened. <laughs> and it was like a trip. It blowed our mind out because it was right in the backyard. They filmed it right in the backyard of our yeah. in our town, and it was the director was actually from Boone. So he came back home to film it. So, yeah. and it was, and it was uh, really funny. And it's like, I couldn't wait to meet you and tell you that story. You know, it's, it's, uh, those things happen, you know. You, never, you, you pretend like you know what's going to happen. Yeah, I know, I know. I, I know. It's, it's, you take like, credit for it after it yeah, happens. You, yeah, take credit, yeah. yeah. But it, it's something. And my wife was a little nervous to come up to say it to you. And I said, I'll go up and tell you about it. That's, uh, yeah, you know, um, it's sort of like when you're playing golf. And you hit a really good shot, and then you say, I'm going to hit this right to left and over that tree, and it's going to land on You know, it's easy to call your shot after that thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, Calling I, it before yes. is the whole thing. Now, my, my one question I have, you played four different sports in high school, didn't you? What's that? You played four different sports in high school? No, no, I was a runner. I was a miler and a two-miler. Oh, really? And I was a cross-country runner. I was a dis in fact, I had the state record when I was 17 in, uh, right. in cross-country. Uh, I think I saw you say your high school was so good at any other school, you would have been number one, I, but you were like seventh at your school. I was running a 440 mile in high school, and I was the seventh guy on the wow. team. There was a guy running 408 in high school, and he drank and smoked. He, <laughs> he never trained. You know, if he would have trained, the guy would have been a sub four minute miler. You know? <laughs> but the crazy thing is, is here you've got the most villainous band in the world every parent hated us for every reason and four of the guys in the band were four-year lettermen okay maybe that's what we I were all it. jocks yeah you know which is very weird you know that we had that covered we had the four-year lettermen thing we had the four stripes on the jack on the sweater and we were also in the band that was hated by the parents and if any kid wanted to get back at their dad at that point Dad says, you can't go to the Alice Cooper concert because he's blah, 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 blah. And the kid would say, oh, by the way, Dad, he can beat you in golf. <laughs> That's like sticking a knife in somebody because Dad's, Dad's golf game means a lot. You know, when, and when this you know, depraved character can beat you in golf, that, that that's, levels the field. Okay, thank you. Excellent, thank you. thank you. How much does, when the touring comes, you got all these albums dropping, what influences what in the schedule as far as golf touring how do you just golf where you can i play or? golf every day literally six days a week right and it doesn't matter if i'm touring or not you still yeah. love it. i play golf anyways when i'm we're on tour i had to find a, an addiction that wasn't going to kill me because 37 i quit dr drinking and, and doing drugs 37 years ago right and so thank you thank you it wasn't really something to clap about. I was throwing up blood at the time, <laughs> which was kind of an indication something may be wrong. Uh, but I had to find something that, that I had an addictive personality. So if I was going to pick up an addiction, it had to be something that wasn't going to kill me. And I lived in Arizona, and I was a good baseball player. So I said, well, how hard could it be to hit a ball that's not moving? Right. I can hit a fastball. Why couldn't I hit a ball that's not moving? The problem is, is, is that golf is extremely addictive. 
It's like the crack of sports, you know. <laughs> and everybody that I know in the rock world that plays golf was at one time an addict or an alcoholic. Wow. Because it's, it plays right into the same thing. You hit a good shot and it's just like taking a drink. Right. You know, so it, it's a healthy way of being an addict. Right. Yeah. That's great. It's a good way to funnel that. How are you, sir? Good. How are you guys? Good. Uh, I actually have two quick questions, if that's okay. Okay. Uh, first question I have, what was it like working on set with Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, and Chris Farley? You know, if you would have seen the We're Not Worthy scene, if you would have seen the extended version of that, it got vile. Is there a way to see <laughs> it? Yeah, yeah there's, somebody has the version of it. It just kept getting worse. We're not worthy. We're not this. Then, it, then, it, then they went off on it. And they were trying to make me laugh. So I picked a spot between them and just delivered the lines to that spot, but they were doing everything they could to make me laugh, you know. Well, and it just got filthy after a while. It just, so whoever owns the outtakes of that scene in particular. I never met Mike Myers or Dana Carvey until I got through about eight characters. I had to get through all their characters before I actually got to the person. And now I know Mike very well, you know. Dana, I never really got past six of his characters. So. How about Chris Farley? Did you ever get a chance to talk or interact with him? Who is that? Chris Farley. Did you ever get a chance to I, you interact know, I, with him? We had, he was in that movie, and yeah. he was... He was uh, it seems like certain comedians that are really the funniest ones that do a lot of characters are very protective, so they hide behind their characters. Um, uh, Jim Carrey is really a good friend of mine and I, I, I got past a couple of his characters that he's really a sweet guy. Johnny Depp has so many characters in front of him. You know, I mean, I call him the Lon Chaney of rock and roll. Absolutely. Because every single movie he does, he's in some sort of makeup yeah. that very rarely do you see him as Johnny Depp. But once you get past her, he's the sweetest guy in the world. How long have you known Johnny? When did you first meet him? Well, we did Dark Shadows together. Oh, right, right. Yeah, we did Dark Shadows together. And uh, when I told him about the Hollywood Vampires, the real drinking club, it was John Lennon, Harry Nielsen, Keith Moon, um, Ringo, myself, and, you know, a bunch of other drunks in, in, in rock and roll. We would meet every single night at the Rainbow and drink. It was like a drinking club. And they started calling us the Hollywood Vampires. So when I met Johnny, we did the movie and everything, and I knew he was a guitar player because he was a guitarist before he was an actor. And I told him about the vampires. He said, well, it would be fun to put a little band together and just do songs for our dead drunk friends. And so we did that. Uh, Joe Perry jumped in and Duff McKagan from uh, Guns N' Roses jumped in. We did a show for 100 people at the Roxy. And a week later, we were at Rock and Rio for 200,000 people. So weird. So what started as a bar band <laughs> ended up, you know, being a, now a big touring band. And, uh, but everything you read about Johnny Depp is pure, pure bull. If you read all this negative stuff. You know, uh, I never believed in fake news yes. until yeah. I started reading this. We're in Moscow, and I'm reading this article, and I said, Johnny, it says here you weigh 110 pounds. You know, I've never what? seen him in better shape in my life. 
<laughs> it says you're depressed, he's laughing all the time. You know, every single thing I read was absolutely opposite of what it was. So, now I do believe in fake news. Right on. And uh, my second question, well, getting to that, for the record, I would much rather you ha be my history teacher than anyone else after seeing Wayne's World. Uh, but I've had many rock idols in my time, you being one, Chester Bennington being another, and the other one being Dave Grohl and Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Uh, my question to you is, do you have any singing idols that you look up to? Oh, yeah, lots. I mean, you can't help from looking up to McCartney, you know. Uh, the guy wrote more hits than anybody else, and he's the nicest guy in the world. Yeah, it's always nice to know that... I always found that the bigger they were, the nicer they were. Uh, I met Elvis, nicest guy. The Beatles, the sweetest people in the world. Sinatra was great, nice guy. It, it, because they were already there, and they had nothing to prove. You know, it was always the guys on their way up that had an ego problem. You know, so I learned really early that everybody gets treated equally. The guy that mops the floor gets treated the same way as the lead guitar player. You know, so to me, that's the way it should be. All right, well, thank you. Awesome. Have a nice day. Thank, thank you. you. On a quick little personal question I have to ask, have you ever met Jerry Lee Lewis? I, had, you know, I have a radio show, okay, uh, Nights with Alice Cooper, and it's been on 15 years, 180 stations across... You know, five hours a night, five nights a week. All right, and we're on in Istanbul. <laughs> we're on in London. We're on everywhere. And I do interviews with everybody. So I get Jerry Lee Lewis. And I went, oh, this could be great. Oh, my God. Jerry Lee Lewis is going to be a wild man on the radio. So I get there and I said, hey, Jerry, man, must have been great to, you know, to go out and tour with those guys. And I got this. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and I went, well, I said, you know, back in those days, you know, da 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 uh-huh. <laughs> oh. One word answers all I still night. Gotta hear it. <laughs> and I just kind of went, come on. Yeah. You were the guy that I was expecting this to be the craziest interview of all time. Now, the craziest interview I ever did. You remember Question Mark and the Mysterians? Okay. I'm talking to the guy, and he goes, uh, well, he says, you know, uh, I said, you live in Michigan, right? And he goes, yeah, yeah, Michigan. He said, I live in Mars, too. I went, what? He said, oh, it's Mars, Michigan? He goes, no, Mars. Okay. He says, you know, in Mars, we don't live on Mars, we live in Mars. Yeah. He says, and the air is food. Okay. This went on like this, you know, and finally he's going, well, Elvis and Jim Morrison love it there. And I went, aha. Aha. So my part of the interview for half an hour was this. Uh-huh. 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 That's great. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Get nice and close there. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, as an aspiring musician, I'm just wondering... Uh, what's some of the best advice you could give someone who's trying to break through in the rock and roll industry, especially the way that it is today, being so digital and so, you know, social? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. And, and to me right now, people say, what's the condition of rock and roll right now? It sounds like rock and roll is on the outside, which in some ways is good. And I'll tell you why. When rock and roll came into business, 
everything was straight music. Right now, I hear the radio and I hear just nothing but straight music. You know, I'm not knocking anybody, but there's very little hard rock on. So now, rock and roll is kind of where it should be, back in the outlaw phase. So hopefully now there's lots of young kids learning Guns N' Roses in the garage and learning Aerosmith and Alice Cooper and Rolling Stones and the Yardbirds and all that because now they can be rebels again. It was for a long time, if you were in rock and roll, you were the establishment. Now rock and roll is back out where it belongs on the outskirts, which I think is kind of cool. So you're going to find that rock is going to find its way back up to the top. It goes in cycles like this. Who's your, are you a guitar player? No, I'm a singer. Singer? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got that covered. Yeah. Uh, write your own songs. You know, really, um, I tell, I had young bands come to me all the time and they go, okay, we want you to produce us. And I go, okay. And I, I'll, let me hear what you got. I said, you got a great look, great attitude. Let me hear the song. And then I'd listen to it and i go, where's the song? You know, and I, I get it, you're angry. <laughs> Every 17-year-old kid is angry. And you're screaming at me. I get it. And there's no melody line. I said, I want you to listen to the Beatles, the Beach Boys, and Burt Bacharach for a week. And then write an angry song, but write it with a verse, a B section, a bridge, a chorus. Go back to the verse, go back to the B section. And with a melody line, so I can sit down on the piano and play it. They couldn't do it. Because all they really wanted to do was yell it, yell. They wanted to scream, and they wanted to be angry. And I just said, that's not songwriting. A songwriter, you could write me a song and make it angry as could be, and I would go, oh, wow, that's great, that's powerful. But yelling at me doesn't, doesn't convince me of anything. You're just yelling at me. Write a song that's going to emotionally take me on. Why do you think the Beatles were so powerful? Because they were, the music was so good. The, the, the singing was good. The, the melody line was good. The, the message was good. The further you get away from the basis of that kind of music on the outskirts out here, the worse your band's going to be. You know, and, and the, the less you're going to stick around because you're just like everybody else now. So write music, listen to real music, and then write whatever you want to write. You know. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much. Hello, how are you? I'm doing wonderful now. Um, I've been, my mom raised me on your music. I was singing about schools out before I knew what school was. <laughs> my question is, when you produced the album, Along Came a Spider. Yep. What was your inspiration for that and the imagery you were going for, all of that? Because that's a brilliant storytelling album. Well, it was, I wanted to write a mystery. You know, I wanted to write a, a story about a guy that was a serial killer, but he was very clever. He, all of his victims were wrapped in silk there was always a leg missing. And at the end, you start realizing that the serial killer is building his own spider. You know, when they finally catch, they, 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 they find where he is, they find the body parts connected to the, the fuselage. <laughs> and, but they don't know, still don't know who it is. 
because at the end of the story you think that it's this guy mm -hmm. and in the end he's talking to his pet spider in the insane asylum and he says well I didn't do it and you didn't do it I wonder who did it and it, it it's, leaves off right then and you go well wait a minute there must be a part two to this I haven't written part two yet <laughs> But I will. On. Yeah, I'm I will. holding on to that yet. I, will. I wanted to leave the audience hanging there for a while. Awesome. Thank awesome. you. Thank so you. Much. That's a nice t shirt. Thank you. All right. When you look back at your catalog, what is the one album that you feel that you're most proud of? And what is the one album that perhaps you're least satisfied with? Um, the least proud I am of an album is the live album in Las Vegas because I was at the end of that welcome to my nightmare I was exhausted I had not quit drinking at this point and I was literally dragging myself up on stage and you know and then I had to go do a live album so as much as I faked it on that album the band was amazing Steve Hunter and Dick Wagner and I mean they were amazing I always wanted to go back and re-record that when I was healthy, but I was not healthy at all during that album. When it comes to the album you're proudest of, it's really, that's like picking your favorite child. Because every album it is like a, a little section of your life. When I was doing, you know, when I was doing Billion Dollar Babies, that was all about us being this very unlikely band that everybody hated into being the number one band in the world. And we were laughing about it, saying we're billion dollar babies. You know, uh, School's Out was another period of time. Uh, and then you get into like Trash, and you get into those albums. They all depict a certain period of your life. And um, there's three albums that I don't remember writing, I don't remember touring with, I don't remember recording them. Which ones? Uh, Zipper Catch a Skin was one. Uh, Special Forces was another, and Flush the Fashion I can sort of remember. But those were my blackout albums. <laughs> and for some reason, my real fans go, those are the best albums. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember any of it, you know. So I was in about a four-year blackout at that point, you know. But they were good albums. I mean, so somebody was writing something. <laughs> some of the weirdest stuff I ever wrote, though. Some of the weirdest albums, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, I would like to know, can you describe how your experience was with Jesus Christ Super Superstar, that would just came recently out, and would you ever do something like that ever again? Oh, yeah, that was fun to do. You know, I knew Tim Rice, mm -hmm. and Tim Rice did all the lyrics for Jesus Christ Superstar. And 20 years ago, he said, we're going to redo the um, original cast album, Would You Play Herod? And I went, yeah, sure. So we did hear it. He wanted it to be a little bit more edgy. So he did that. So when this came around, I guess he and Weber are sitting there and they're figuring out who's going to play what. And they got to Herod and they both kind of looked at each other and went, Alice, you know. Now normally Herod is played as this fat roly-poly kind of idiot. I saw Herod as Alan Rickman, you know, sort of condescending, you know. And so I said, I'm going to play him like that, you know. And uh, the weird thing about that was everybody had three months of rehearsal. I was on tour at the time. So on a day off, I would fly into New York 
rehearse and then leave that night. But for me, it was a little easier because Weber said, I want this play to be, the, the closer to a rock show this is, the better. And so I went, okay, I'll just treat this as one of my songs on the show. Um, and playing Herod as this condescending king, I think was refreshing because he was always different. I, I really wanted him to be like, all of this is about me. You know, oh yeah, there's this Jesus character, but it's all about me. And so once you had that character down, then it was, the reality was he was terrified of Jesus. All of his life he was terrified of Jesus, but he had to put this air on that he wasn't. But he was the king, I'm the king, you know. So it was really fun to do. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Hello. Hi. Uh, one of my favorite Deep Cup horror movies is Monster Dog. And I want to know, do you think the world is ready for a Monster Dog remake? Uh, a what? Monster Dog. Monster Dog. Monster Dog was, I had just gotten sober. And I had to do something to prove I could work sober. So Shep, my manager, my, been my manager for 51 years. He's more insane than I am. He goes, okay, why don't we take a movie in Spain? And you could get up every morning and work and just see how you do without alcohol. I went, okay, let's do that. They promised us the movie would only be released in the Philippines. So I did it. I got to do the whole movie and it was great. Everybody in the cast was either British or English, right? So I finally get the movie and we put it on and I'm riding in the van and I look at the girl and I go, hey, where are we going today? They overdubbed everybody's voice in broken English, right? And I'm, I'm talking like this, you know, oh, hey, I'm going to go over there now, you know. And everybody in the, in the movie, you know, just went, what? <laughs> it was really fun to do because I got to play the hero and the villain. I was kind of a Clint Eastwood kind of guy in that movie, which was weird for me. But I doubt if there's going to be a part two. <laughs> At least make a sequel to the opening yeah. uh, well, intro music. Yeah. That was fun. If you notice, I didn't get nominated for Best Actor on that one. No. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. Howdy. Hi. Hi. Uh, my main question is, in your live shows, has there ever been a stunt you considered to be truly over the line for Alice Cooper? There were some very dangerous ones. Um, we didn't realize that in the hanging, when you get hung, there's a little latch behind your back on a, on a vest. And there's a piano wire that runs down the back of the noose. And you put that, you, they, when they put you up there, they lack that in. That's going to take the pressure of you falling to the thing. It's going to stop the rope right here. Hopefully. After about 100 uses, didn't realize in London, we try it and piano wire snaps and it grabs me right here and I swear your self-preservation says throw your head back and I went like that and it burned me pretty good and it knocked me out but it it was one of those things when, when you do our show you have to remember there's a lot of moments for spinal tap anytime you do moving parts and and tricks on stage or, or illusions you're setting yourself up for spinal tap 
because things are going to break, and then you have to play this comedy. But on this thing, it wasn't really funny because I really went right through the floor. Uh, that was scary. There's no way you put your head in a guillotine every night with a 40-pound blade and go, okay, I hope this works tonight because you really have to release it at the right time. Don't try this at home if any of you have guillotines at home. Yeah. Um, but it really is a trick that you have to learn so that the blade doesn't actually hit you. But it's a razor-sharp blade, and it's a 40-pound blade. It's not a rubber blade. You know, I, I, I have always said it. there needs to be some sort of danger in the show in order for the audience to get the thrill. When I used to go to the circus, you'd see a guy in a cage with tigers, and he's got a chair. You think that tiger couldn't like destroy that chair like that? So there was a moment of real fear that this guy could get eaten that night, or that the girl without a net up there is going to fall. That, that's, that's part of the thrill of it. So I said, we, we, any of our props are going to have to be real. The swords, there's no rubber swords up there. Those are all, that's why everybody gets stitches. Um, the sword I use is actually Errol Flynn's sword that he used in uh, Captain Blood. What? Really? So that's, that's why that sword's the very... The actual piece? That's the actual one, yes. Wow. And, uh, but the blade is real. And when you feel it, you go, so this only misses you by what, that much? Yeah. My Very main cool. story, one of the other things is when you were on BBC's Top Gear, you talked about Keith Moon being truly insane. Oh, uh, who? Keith Moon. Oh, Keith Moon. Well, I'd like to learn a little more about that French maid outfit. Keith, if I told you a hundred stories about Keith Moon, that would be like there's 20 other guys that could tell you a hundred other stories. Every day for Keith Moon was like, insanity. He was certifiably insane, but he was the best drummer I ever saw in my life. And he was the sweetest guy. He was like a little kid that needed Ritalin. You know, he'd come over and stay at your house for two months. You know, it could be two weeks or two months. And I came home one day and I opened the door and he's standing there and he's dressed like a French maid. You know, with the, with the duster. <laughs> oh, I have cleaned the whole house and uh, I would like to have the night off. And I said, okay. My wife was 18 years old. She it had, it had no idea who, uh, who Keith Moon was. She says, who is he? <laughs> but every night was like that. Every day was some new adventure. I'm driving down Hollywood Boulevard one time, coming down from Benedict Canyon, and all of a sudden, he's on the roof of the car the whole way. You know, and people are beeping the horn and, you know, like this, and I'm going, what? And it's Keith Moon's on the roof of the car. And that was norm that was like a Tuesday for him, you know. He was certifiably insane and so sweet. The guy was such a nice, it wouldn't hurt anybody. But he really was the greatest drummer I ever saw in my life. Thanks. Yeah, awesome. you could Thank never you, tell man. enough stories about Keith Moon. Okay, unfortunately, we only got about five minutes or left, so uh, maybe one or two more questions here. I'm sorry, kids. Alice will be over in uh, the guest area, and he'd be happy to meet you and answer your questions as well over there. Hi, so Alice. As long as they're one-word answers. <laughs> yes, no, didn't know. 
It's amazing to see you here. Um, Chris Cornell from Soundgarden used to have a great story of bringing billion dollar babies to show and tell in elementary school. And I know that you sang two of Chris's songs on The Last Temptation. Yeah. Did you get to work with him at all? Do you have you know, any memories of him at all? That was the only suicide. Is, is that God talking? I'm sorry. <laughs> Keep it down out there. It's all right. He's probably saying something very important. Okay, he wasn't. Chris Cornell's suicide was one of the strangest moments for me because, you know, when you know guys that are suicidal or they have a dark side or they have a depressed side, you, your feelers are out. You kind of know who they are. Uh, Bennington, you know, was a friend of mine. I taught him how to play golf, you know, but there was this something going on there, you know. Chris did not have that. Chris did not have that suicidal thing at all. And that's why I was like, I said, what are you talking about that he committed suicide? I still don't, I still have my juries out on that one. You know, um, I got to work with him on Temptation. We, we came in and wrote two songs together. Greatest voice, great guitar player, great singer, great writer. So he and I got along really, really well. I was totally shocked at his suicide, if it was suicide. I'm so glad you guys yeah. got to work together. Oh, yeah, no, he was great. Really great. Thank you, Excellent. Yeah. Thanks so much. Okay, I think we got one more. I'm so sorry. This is kids. a compliment, not a question. First of all, I love your music. Thank you. I first saw you on The Muppet Show, and I was hooked. One of my favorite songs for me was School's Out, which I sang a lot when I was a kid on the last day of school. School's Out is the national anthem right around May. But not just in America, all over the world. If you're in Russia, if you're in China, if you're in last day of school, school's out, comes on the, the PA. I had no idea it was going to have that impact at all when we wrote it, but I figured every kid would buy into the fact that I can't wait for summer. You know, that was, I, I, I always said, if you could capture the last three minutes of the last day of school before summer vacation, the excitement, watching the clock do that, and then bam, three o'clock, and everybody explodes into, I said, we can capture that in a song, it'll be a great song. And we did, with School's Out, you know. And then we started thinking, what if we wrote a song called School's In? Nobody's <laughs> buying into that at all. <laughs> and nobody wanted to hear that song, so School's Out was the song. Amazing. Thank uh, you, Mr. Cooper. Thank you, sorry guys. Just gonna have to meet him over at his table there. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for joining us in thank Philadelphia, you. Detroit, rock and roll all the way. Head over, meet Mr. Cooper, get a picture. Thank you so thank you. much. Thank you.